to be here with you, despite the weather. We had some challenges, but it was a, but we're here, and we're dry, and we're enjoying the fellowship of the Lord. And for the worship this morning, Vladimir, with his percussion chops, quite a And John, that's a 12-string you're playing, right? Cool. Pessimistic boy, and he's in there with all those toys. And at first, he's thrilled, he's excited, he's laughing, he's howling. He's like, "This is great!" And they go back to him later, and he's like crying on the floor, face to the floor, kicking and screaming, sobbing uncontrollably. And they're like, "What's the matter?" He says, "I can't possibly keep these toys. These toys are so wonderful. Somebody's going to take them from me. I'm never going to get to enjoy them for any period of time." They're like still pessimistic. And then they um, they go to the optimist in that room with all that stuff. And they see him, and he's jumping around, and he's throwing this stuff up in the air, and, it, and it's against the walls, and he's standing up to his waist in it, and the father's looking at it, and the boy's got a smile ear to ear on his face. And he's looking, he's like, what is going on here? He says, Daddy, Daddy, I'm so excited. With all this horse manure, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> so, strange as it might seem, that story reminds me of the Apostle Paul. And I know I'm going to have to meet him someday, so I hope I don't have to apologize. But Paul was definitely, at the very least, we could say optimistic. 
but not optimistic because he had some sunny disposition, you know, or a bright outlook on life. Paul, the, I think personally he had the opposite going on, but he had faith in the Lord. He had the joy of the Lord, faith in the Lord, hope that that faith brings, abounding love for all people, showing the love of Christ to all, and not simply, as I said, because of some sunny disposition, but because of his faith, because of his saving faith, and because of the faith of the Lord in him to call him, to equip him, to give him this glorious ministry that we'll speak about a little bit later. So this unbridled hope, this abundant joy, unconditioned love for all these people, we see this in 2 Corinthians in the opening chapters, say, chapter 2 through 7. And, uh, but in order to understand why I think Paul is so sunny, bright, optimistic, filled with faith, hope, love in the Lord, it's, we, we need to take a better look at what's going on in the church in Corinth and the Corinthians themselves, and then I think his um, bright looking on the bright side, appears so obvious. So listen to this description of the, of the situation in Corinth. Uh, I'm going to read this description. It's got some dates in it. Don't have to worry so much about the dates. But also notice, too, if you will, the number of letters that went back and forth between Paul and the Corinthians, the Corinthians and Paul. So Paul founded the church in Corinth probably around 50 or 51, uh, um, current era. He wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, now lost, somewhere a short time after that. The Corinthians pushed back on what Paul had written to them with questions uh, and concerns. The person, the mailman who delivered the letter, reported the serious problems that the letter spoke about to the Apostle Paul. And so later that year, 54, we think, he replied to the Corinthians with what is our first Corinthians. So it's actually, our first Corinthians is actually the second letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, the first one is lost. In light of all that's going on, all of the problems, all of the difficulties, Paul says, I got to go. I, I got to do an on-site visit. He goes there, and after the visit, he just called it painful. A missionary pastor goes to a congregation, and he says, that was just painful. Later, Paul writes a tearful letter to them, letter number three, again, lost in the mail, in order to reach out to maintain and rebuild the relationship. And, and the resistance against Paul improved slightly, but they weren't out of the woods completely. There were still some problems. Some repented. We don't know how many. We don't know about these instigators. But in response to all this, Paul writes our Second Corinthians in order to encourage what's good and correct what's bad. That's a general picture. The church at Corinth had some serious problems. I'll give you a quick summary. Serious problems, Corinth. Partisan factions among the members. Rivalries among the leaders, celibacy within marriage, and promiscuity outside of it. Christians married to one another asking about divorce. Christians married to pagans also wanting to know about divorce. Lawsuits, idolatry, incest, and prostitution. Drunkenness and discrimination at the Lord's table. Concerns about women praying and prophesying in immodest ways, chaos in worship with speaking in tongues and competing with one another for a greater voice in higher levels of spirituality, denials of the bodily erection of Jesus and the Christians, and criticism of Paul for a variety of reasons. Paul spent a year and a half living among the Corinthians, and still there were cliques when he left. You know how the first Corinthians, some say, I, I am of Paul. Some say, I am of Apollos. And these are the more spiritual ones. Oh, yes. But I follow Jesus. 
You're like, oh, come on. All these cliques, you know, all these divisions, schisms among them, and yet the greatest clique in the Corinthian church was the one that arrayed itself against the Apostle Paul. Not a good situation. They, they questioned his ministry because of all of his sufferings and afflictions. They doubted his spirituality, questioned his wisdom, belittled his epistles, and disdained his preaching. So what's a, an apostle to do? How do you deal with this? How do you, how do you respond? If he plays hardball, as he could easily do, um, he could lose him entirely. If he adopts a more laissez-faire, easygoing attitude, that might give him the impression that it's really no big deal. It's not really a problem. Just relax. It's all going to work out in the wash. So he's got to deal with it. Um, and so um, he's got to respond. But how? Okay, so as I ask that question, you know, how is he going to respond? He's got, you know, sin, rebellion, disdain for him and his ministry, his motives. Um, how does he respond? I want to show you some verses from the book of Corinthians that Paul wrote to them. And these questions that we're asking isn't just for a, a historical, biblical, like what's going on back then in, in, in the first century. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in, his, what, in our first Corinthians. He's writing to the Corinthians about the Jewish people when they were, when they were wild and in the wilderness. There was immorality and idolatry going on. He's, he's, he's citing... Uh, portions of Moses from Exodus and Numbers. And he says, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. He said, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So Paul says to the Corinthians in the first century, he says, you guys got to read your Bibles and check out what's going on. He says, these people, there was idolatry, there was immorality, in the wilderness, as there was idolatry and immorality in Corinth. And he says, these things are written for you to check this out. And so similarly, as we read the scriptures, and if you don't remember anything else I tell you today, check this out. Listen to this. What he wrote to the Corinthians was written down. It happened to them, but it's written down for our example. These things happened to the Corinthians as examples for us. In other words, I, it was the Apostle John who said everything that the Lord said and did couldn't be, you know, it's not written down. We just selected certain items for our Gospels, for our epistles. If we were going to write down everything that Jesus said, it would fill the Library of Congress, for goodness sakes. And so the things were carefully selected. And they're selected because you and I need to hear them. We need to know them. And again, we could open our Bibles and, and say, all right, let's find where 1 Corinthians begins and 2 Corinthians ends. You find that, and, we, and if, if we don't have Corinthian tendencies in our lives, well, let's just rip them out because we don't read these epistles. If we don't have Galatian tendencies, legalistic tendencies, chuck the, chuck the book of Galatians. We don't need it. These things happen to the Galatians. These things happen to the Corinthians. But they're written down for us that we might rid ourselves of any Corinthian concepts that linger in the back of our minds any uh, legalistic Galatian notions that we might deal with those. It happened to them, but they wrote it down for us. Cool? So, um, so that's, um, that's the nuts and bolts. And again, you know, you see, sometimes you hear this. It's like all, all the New Testament uh, books are associated with an apostle. And sometimes people say, oh, Paul, I don't know. He's a little misogynistic. I don't think he likes women. It's like 
that, that could easily, <laughs> that notion could easily grow into Corinthian child and maybe into full adulthood. So these, that's an example of how these things can work in our heads and in our hearts. And so, okay, so uh, we're going to get to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but in order to get the context, you can't just look at 2 Corinthians 4 and start teaching and preaching about it. We want to understand, like, what's the context? What's, what's going on? Uh, and so we already know that there are all these problems in Corinth. Paul is trying to deal with them in some sense, trying to straighten out and help them to straighten out and fly right. And so as I looked at the opening chapters of um, 2 Corinthians, chapters 1 to 7, I'm like, what's going on here? I couldn't make rhyme or reason of it. I said, let me check out some commentaries, see if they, the, 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 these authors have something to help. And so one of them called it a great digression. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Like, it's ambling and rambling. So the chapter, so Second Corinthians opens with this long, extended, rambling, prosaic piece of praise and rejoicing for the gospel and its gospel ministry that Paul has. He, he, he praises the Lord. He's, he's elevating the Lord in this great digression, talking about all the wonders that he has done um, in the church and on earth and how we no longer have an Old Testament uh, ministry. We have a New Testament ministry, which has got better perks and better blessings. So it's a digression for sure. But if it's the word of God, that digression better have some meaning and purpose or we're in trouble. It's like God just doesn't like Paul may like amble and ramble a little bit. But if it's inspired by the spirit, it's got to have a point. It's got to be going somewhere. And he is. He's Paul is responding to all the problems um, at Corinth, not head on. But he's almost doing an end run around them. He's focusing on worship and praise and joy for the new life that we have in Christ. Amid this praise, he's encouraging the Corinthians to, like, you know, listen to me, uh, pay attention. He's affirming his love for them uh, and his commitment to them while simultaneously elevating the grace of God, the, the love of the gospel, the ministry of salvation to Jews and Gentiles. So it's very positive, very upbeat, very optimistic. But it's also a little odd when you think about why is he doing this with all of the issues going on. And it's, it's, he's singing in the rain. <laughs> he's ignoring the clouds of Corinthian discontent. He's refusing to allow this Corinthian disdain for his, for his ministry to reign on his triumphal procession in victory over the forces of evil. Pre, Paul is preaching the warm glow of Christian ministry and fellowship while singing hymns in a Corinthian dungeon of discontent and disapproval. It's like, I'm re- and you go, whoa, boy. Nice. So why? What is he doing? What, what, why this positive stream of doctrine and glory and praise and honor to our Lord in the midst of all of these problems that are going on? Well, as I said, I, 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 t- I checked out one commentary, and then I had to check out a few more. Scholars agree on this digression. They debate it. They offer a number of opinions. There's no lack of suggestions or hypotheses among these authors, but I'm not going to quote any of them. I'm going to give you my own two cents for what it's worth. I don't know if you've ever been to couples therapy. In couples therapy, when a husband and wife are like at end at this bitterness, unforgiveness, anger, debate, criticism, the, the marriage therapist will almost say, okay, I want the two of you to sit on the sofa together even if you don't do it, pardon me, do it literally, I want you to see this in a different way. I want the two of you sitting together on the sofa and take the problem that's bothering you, that 
the issue that's before you and put it on the coffee table in front of you so that the two of you side by side on the couch can look at the problem in front of you and how can we attack this problem. That changes their perspective because mostly, you know, um, even though Paul wrote, you know, we don't, write against we don't fight against flesh and blood. <laughs> Spouses need to know that. We need to be reminded of that. And so he's completely changing their perspective on the, pro on, on the, on the, on the problem. And I think at least partially that's what Paul is doing. He's aiming to change their perspective on what's going on between them. He's inviting them to look up and to consider heaven where his, the hope comes from because we're saved. He encourages them, to, encourages them to look into the future that is ours in Christ Jesus. He's asking them to consider these things. Here are some themes that are running through these chapters. The comfort that we have amid our affliction. Deliverance from death and disasters. The joy that we experience even in our pain is found in chapter 2, the opening verses. The forgiveness that frees us from pain and sorrow. The triumphal procession of the gospel that brings the sweet aroma of Christ. The gospel ministry brings glorious benefits. So it's kind of like, why are we fighting among us? Why do we have these schisms, these, these cliques between us? Look at who we are. Think about what's going on. In, in, our, in our lives in, with our faith. And so uh, that brings us to um, the exorbitant treasure in jars of clay, question mark. So uh, just a quick look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. If you're not there already, I'm getting there. There's two sections in here. Four, chapter 4, 1 through 6, and 7 to 12. Uh, if you notice, verse 1, this ministry, and then in verse 7, this treasure. This ministry and this treasure. So again, he's continuing to sing the good news of the glorious gospel and not give in to squabbles between him and the Corinthians. So this, um, this ministry and this treasure, we'll call it this glorious ministry, and this uh, exorbitant treasure. First is one to seven. This glorious ministry. We have this glorious ministry by the mercy of God. Mercy is a free gift. Grace is something you get for not doing anything. Mercy is what you get when you did something bad and you deserve a spanking, but you get something, a blessing instead. So he continues with more good news. Uh, at the end of chapter three, I got it highlighted in my Bible. The word glory appears 13 times. I think there's two English translations that have all 13 of them. Most of them eliminate because it, it culminates with we're being transformed into Christ's image from glory to glory. I think it's, uh, there's only two, I think, that include that other glory. Rather, they say in increasing pictures of glory. But he mentions glory 13 times in the original, focusing on we got a glorious life. Our future's so bright. We got to wear shades. We have a wonderful life. We have a wonderful inheritance. We're blessed beyond riches. The, 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 the salvation that we enjoy is far superior to what the Old Testament saints enjoyed. And he's saying we have a ministry of life, not death. It's an unfading glory that reveals what the Old Testament conceals. It's not etched in stone on tablets. It's written on hearts of flesh. It's a liberating work of the Holy Spirit. He sets us free. Not with the letter, because the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And it's eternal, not temporary. You can't lose it. It's ours. 
It's a glorious ministry. It's like, why are we fighting about stupid little stuff? You don't like my letters. You, you think my letters are weak, but when I show up, I'm like a tough guy. You don't like my preaching, you know? They're always letters are powerful, but it's preaching. He's like, come on, what's up? why are we doing this? We have this glorious ministry by the mercy of God, so we don't lose heart, we don't get discouraged, we're not disheartened. And so it's not like, you know, there's a pony in here somewhere. He's like, no, it's not because there's a pony in the room. It's because there's a Lord on the throne. We can rejoice. We can, we can work it out. We can talk. We can dialogue. We can discuss. We don't have to fight. And even those closing verses um, of this section, he says, for God, verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's zero in on that one because there's a lot in that one little verse. First of all, when he, when he says let light shine out of darkness, he's, he's reaching back to Genesis, to the original creation, when God said let there be light, and he let light shine out of darkness. Paul is going, remember Genesis? Remember Moses? He said, well, God not only let light shine in this creation, but Paul, this is a deliberate reference to Paul's conversion when he was on the road to Damascus and he saw that light. And the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus shone on him. And he was never the same ever since. He's like, have you been converted? Do you know him? Has the light of his glorious gospel shone on you at all? It's like, why are you fighting with me? I'm your father. I love you. I've never done anything but care for you, tenderly nurture you like a mom nurtures her baby. And you guys, you know, like my lettuce. It's like, stop. The Apostle Paul. I'm going to tell you one thing about the Apostle Paul. It ain't my notes because he's just so cool. He'd never get his own talk show. I'm telling you. He... he I, he was not telegenic in the least. They say he was short, bald, bow-legged, and a unibrow. History records this. Short, bald, bow-legged, unibrow rabbi. And he, was bo he boasted about Saul, like the first king of Israel. I, too, was like, named Saul, and I, too, was born of the tribe of Benjamin, and I, too, have exceeded many of my peers and all of my studies, my pharisaical, blah, 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 blah. He says that's, <laughs> talk about the, the off-scouring of a horse stable. He says that's what that was. He changed his name to Paul. You know what Paul means? Small. He says, I'm not boasting about all that stuff like I used to boast about. I just want to be a small servant of God. And that's another paradox that he says, I'm forsaking all that so-called grandeur that I could be just a small, of some small service to our Lord and his gospel. That's the glorious ministry that he has. And then he speaks about the exorbitant treasure that we have in clay plots. I mean, come on, who does that? If you, if you had the hope diamond, you're going to hide it and ball it up in a pair of socks and put it in your sock drawer, you know? If you have a million dollars cash in the house, you've got to put it in a big, large paper bag and it's like stick it under the bed. It's like, but this is essentially what the Lord is doing by giving to us this glorious Holy Spirit, the glory that is ours in Christ Jesus, and he puts it in your body and mine. 
And so what Paul does is says, but we have this treasure, this exorbitant treasure in jars of clay. And then he goes on to exposit the weakness and frailty of humanity. He mentions afflictions, perplexities, persecutions, degradations. We're down, but not out, he might say, to raise the vernacular to the current usage. Um, but he's, he's focusing on our weakness. We're afflicted, crushed, but not perplexed, driven to despair, knocked down, persecuted, but not forsaken always carrying around in the body. And he mentions body several times, the, the body of death, so that in life he may be fest, his glory may be manifested in our bodies. You want to know, here's a cool thing. You might have heard this before. I heard it from some preacher somewhere myself. Um, jars of clay, cheap. You can't get any cheaper vessel. Um, it's not glass. It's they made out of mud. And they, they you know, I don't know the entire process, but... Um, it's just clay. It's dirt, mud, forged together, hardened. And they would sell it in marketplaces. And um, sometimes in, in the process, it might have little cracks, might have little holes. Um, and they would, they would fill those with wax to keep it, you know, so that if you're putting a liquid inside, it's not going to le leak out. They'd cover it with wax and then put a glaze on it. But the idea was wax. And uh, even our English word, sincere, comes from Latin, sincera. And all of my Latino brothers and sisters in the congregation will realize that that means, sincera means without wax. In other words, if you've got a jar of clay, you don't want to cover the holes, the imperfections, the frailties, the humanity of that clay. You don't want it to cover it with wax, like some artificial pretense. You want the glory of the Lord to shine out through that crack, through your imperfections, through your humanity, that his glory might be seen. And that's what he's saying, that, um, that Jesus, uh, that we live, sorry, where did it go? Well, I lost my verse. Uh, always carrying it, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We can manifest him through our frailties, through our weaknesses, through the cracks in, our, in this treasure in this clay. Now, he emphasizes body twice, mortal flesh, to make sure it's like, yeah. And then later on, he calls in, uh, the, this, this body is just a tent. It's not a permanent dwelling. But this idea about the potter, let me just um, focus on this a little bit. Um, this term is used in several different places. You see on the screen before you that um, God formed man from the dust of the ground. Again, talking about creation. And forming man from the dust of the ground is presenting the Lord God as a, as a potter who's taking the clay and making man. He's, a, he's an, the potter as an artisan. He's fashioning an exquisite work of art. If you want to just take a second and look, walk, look around the room, look at all these amazing, exquisite works of art. There's not two the same. Children, you know, Sometimes you have one child, he's an optimist. Sometimes he's a pessimist. Our kids are not the same. You have, I, I have two, I, you know, boy and a girl, so that's obvious. But even their personalities. It's like each of us is a creation of the Lord. And it's an exquisite work. And so God is the potter who, who forms us, creates us from the dust of the earth. He's the artisan. Jeremiah, in chapter 18, speaks about the potter as a sovereign craftsman who is able to bring order from calamity and chaos. There's a, that's a great passage in, in Jeremiah 18. 
then Paul twice uses it. First in Romans. Let's look at Romans because it is a challenging um, piece of literature. Romans 9, 19. I want to save my spot here. Romans 9, 19 to 24. He's talking about the context. I'm a killer for context because a verse out of context is a pretext. Um, uh, he's talking about um, the sovereign call of Israel in this um, chapter, Romans 9, and um, how God fashioned him like a potter fashions him. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? The clay talking back to the potter. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? What will, will, will what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me thus? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much, much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from Jews only, but from also from the Gentiles. So this is a, a challenging uh, writing from the Apostle Paul. He, he intentionally makes all kinds of vessels for all kinds of uses and all kinds of purposes. We must put that in our theological pipe and smoking. And then finally in um, 2 Timothy, Paul also adds one more thing about the same idea that the, the clay, the, the treasure, the vessel, you and me, have the responsibility to cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable. So it's good to know also that the clay always benefits from the potter's craftsmanship, no? The clay always benefits from the potter's hand, and odd to see that the clay often talks back to the potter, seeking to improve on the potter's design. And it's good to recall that we are responsible to reply, to cooperate, to be malleable clay in the hands of the divine potter. So we're going to wrap now in just a few minutes. We've got a closing close, uh, not a, 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 a it's not a closing hymn, it's a next hymn, a Have Thine Own Way. And I would invite us as we, think, as we sing it to think about ourselves and as clay in the hands of the potter and we can consider um, where we are right now, today, this morning, uh, this season in our lives or whatever it happens to be. You know, are, are we malleable clay in his hand? If not, why not? Ask questions, having a conversation with him. It's okay. Uh, he says, he mentions lots of places. Uh, even in Jeremiah, the clay says, we're not doing what the potter says. In Jeremiah, that's what the, the clay talks back. Not, not we're not sure, we're debating about it, we'll let you know when we decide. He's like, we're not doing what the potter wants us to do. And so, um, yeah, so um, what Paul is doing, just to wrap, Paul is dealing with resistance, contempt for his person, his ministry, to change our perspective. Remember I said <laughs> these things were written down for our advice for our example in order to change us, trying to get us to focus on the glories of our new life in Christ, that we may walk in love, joy, peace, love one another, forgive one another, that this might genuinely be a community of love and care, that as Paul says, we, 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 we don't follow the disgraceful ways of this world. We're not contentious. We're not obnoxious. We're gentle. We're kind. We're loving. 
And so, yeah, we have a responsibility to obey the Lord. But even better still is if you, if you just consider with me how our Lord has left us an example. Jesus submitted to the potter's plan. Jesus took on mortal flesh for our sakes. And at the incarnation, he laid aside his glory to indwell a pot of clay. I could add, he laid aside his glory to permanently and eternally indwell a pot of clay. He's the forever God-man. When he comes back and we see him and we meet him and we go to be with him together for glory, he's still going to have that human clay, pot of clay, the human. At the incarnation, he laid aside his glory to indwell a pot of clay for the honorable purpose of revealing the Father and redeeming humanity. Jesus kept his vessel clean from all dishonor, took the fragile pot of clay from Gethsemane, and marched it up to Calvary that, he might, that it might be smashed on the cross and raised a vessel 